Jess. Good morning again. I don't know how many of you keep a journal or a diary. Anybody? Anyone willing to admit it? <laughs> okay. Um, I, I've, I've had a hit and miss relationship with diaries and journals. Um, I, I used to kind of fill in a, a, a kind of prayer journal when I was at school and felt incredibly guilty if I missed a day and look back and go, oh, I missed a well, That was quite a long time of missing things out. And then, then I started writing a journal a number of years ago and I was released from the guilt of having to fill in every single day. It was really great. But I started this journal and as I was writing, the most horrible thought, the most horrible, arrogant thought came across my mind. Someone's going to read this one day. <laughs> These could be published. <laughs> and then I pinched myself and told myself to wise up. <laughs> I wonder if Nehemiah had that kind of thought when he's writing this journal of his work that he went, you know, one day in a place far away called Skip Town, someone's going to read this and then someone's going to waffle about it for a while. I don't think so. But this is an amazing diary, an amazing journal of the record of Nehemiah. Now, why on earth are we looking at Nehemiah over this autumn series? Well, Lisa and I spent a bit, quite a bit of time getting together, kind of planning out what sort of things um, we will be studying. And, you know, we pray, we wrestle, we have ideas, and we throw them out and everything. And Nehemiah seemed to be the right thing because we as a church are involved in a building project, aren't we? And many of us will be immediately thinking of the house next door and the plans for what we want to do in here. And we think about architects and plans and budgets. And, uh, and we're going to re-envision what we're going to do about that because, believe it or not, that is not our building project. Our building project is to be involved in the building of the kingdom. That's a part of it. That's a part of the vision that God has given us. But it's not about a house. It's not about bricks and mortar. It's about the kingdom of God. And so we're going to try and revision about over this next little while about what it means to build the community and the people of God to restore building walls, restoring lives. This is what we're going to encounter over the next few weeks. We're going to encounter Nehemiah and leadership, opposition, spirituality and practicality, faith, courage, community identity and prayer. And we're going to be looking at that. I hope you're interested and excited by this. Brilliant. Let me give you a little bit of context about Nehemiah, where he fits in things. Now, we, we can have a starting point of David. We know David well, don't we? The whole Goliath thing. And then he had a son, Solomon. He became king. And then Solomon had, had a son. And the, the kingdom split at that point to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Both were as bad as each other most of the time. But the northern kingdom of Israel, that's where it gets confusing, um, they got really bad, and they got warned again and again and again, and eventually the Assyrians came and wiped them out completely off the face of the earth. And then a number of hundred years later, Judah, after loads of warning, the southern kingdom were told, listen, the same thing's going to happen to you. Sort yourselves out or you're going to be destroyed. And lo and behold, they were overtaken by this dude. Nebuchadnezzar, which we know about Nebuchadnezzar, we, we know the whole Daniel story. He comes in 587, he, he destroys um, Jerusalem. We can read about it in 2 Chronicles. He destroys Jerusalem, burns down the walls, the gates, the temple, the sanctuary, and carts off thousands of people from Judah to Babylon, hundreds of miles away. 
That's the exile. They've gone off, and we hear the story of Daniel and all, all those guys around then. But Babylon was overthrown by this guy, Cyrus, a Persian. And during this time, uh, Cyrus, he was a bit more enlightened. Uh, you might want to, just for, for, just for a laugh, look up um, the very end of Second Chronicles. I think it's Second Chronicles 36. And uh, what it says about Cyrus it says here, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with you, and let him go up. Cyrus, the Persian, had a very um, enlightened attitude. He decided that he would send people back from conquered places back to their homeland. It says so in the Bible, but it also says it on this bit of stone. I took this photograph just last week in the British Museum. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. I'm sorry, this is a geek alert. Um, I love Nehemiah for a lot of reasons, one of which is that lots of his context can be shown in the British Museum, that this is real. On this stone cylinder, that's called the Cyrus Cylinder, is an edict from Cyrus, which pretty much in Persian says exactly what he says in 2 Chronicles and in Ezra chapter 1. That those who've been conquered are allowed to go back to their homelands and worship their gods and do whatever. It's in keeping. That Cyrus Cylinder is an amazing proof of the accuracy of the Bible. So the first return happens about 70 years after the exile. That Jeremiah said, funnily enough, after 70 years, you're going to be returning. Funny that, isn't it? After Cyrus becomes a guy called Darius, who allows the temple to be built. During this time, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah are talking about the importance of the temple and being built. And the temple is finally finished. We read about it in Ezra. Following Darius, there's a guy called Xerxes, or in the Bible it's called Ahasuerus, loads of H's, who is married to a woman called Esther. You might have heard of her. She's got a book in the Bible. Read it. It's great. That's Xerxes. And they're based in a place called Susa. So is Nehemiah. If you go to the British Museum, which please, I am a geek. I know that. But you walk past wall friezes from the palace of Susa that Esther would have walked past. That Nehemiah would have walked past. Okay? This is kind of tangible stuff. But following Xerxes, his son, they were great at names, Artaxerxes takes over. And this is the king who... Nehemiah is serving. This is his period of time. He was known as a very noble and gentle king, Artaxerxes. So what's the situation? That's where it fits within the story of Israel and within our scriptures so that you know where, where to fit it. So the situation of Nehemiah and in Ezra, that some of Judah has already returned and they've built the temple, but the walls have stopped being built. You read Ezra, you find out why. Okay, the king says, no, you can't build anymore. The reason, if you look at history, is because he had a big uprising in Egypt from his loyal citizens. So he was a bit wary of his subjects building a bit of a power base. But now he trusts this guy called Nehemiah. So the walls had been neglected. And we're told about this guy, Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king. He lived in Susa in Persia, which was the, the winter palace because it was too hot in the summer. 445 BC in the month of November, December. Do you want any more specifics? Do you want the date? Well, we could probably find that out. You want something else? This silver platter, this silver bowl, has around it, written around it, this bowl was made for King Artaxerxes. This is something that quite probably Nehemiah had in his hands. 
Sorry for the geekness. <laughs> so he is the cupbearer to the king. His name is Nehemiah. It means God is my comfort. He was born in exile. He was the descendant of the original exiles. He kept his Hebrew name, as did his father, which is interesting. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, he asks one of his brothers, one of his kinsmen who's coming back from Judah, how are things over there? The last thing he knows is that people have gone to rebuild the temple and it's gone well. That's the last thing. They didn't have internet, BT, telephones, smoke signals. No, not at all. And this is like hundreds of miles away. He's thinking things must be going well for God's people. And he asks them and he gets a reality check. And it says those who survived the exile are back in the province. They're in great trouble. They're in great disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burnt. More than probably not just by Nebuchadnezzar, but by other people as well. They're in great trouble. It's not what Nehemiah was expecting to hear. In his comfort in Susa. His people, his friends are struggling and suffering There's no city wall, which means there's no city, which means God's promises aren't happening. So this is shameful upon God. The surrounding nations are laughing at us. They could walk in to our city. There's no defenses. There's no gates. We're a mockery. We're open to all. We're weak, indefensible, and pretty much insecure. Judah was living in ruins. That was his reality check. And I think we need a little bit of a reality check too. We can look around and think, wow, SBC, we're thriving, we're active, we're pretty much full, and can give us a real false sense of reality. I um, have a few statistics, which of course, what was it? Um, Someone said 37.536% of statistics are made up. Or someone said you can prove statistics, you can use statistics to prove anything. But these are some um, well documented things about the reality of our church, our brothers and sisters. In the UK, 28% of people in a, in a survey said they believed in God or some higher power. 28%. 38% said they didn't believe anything of the sort. Andy, can you knock that light off? Cheers, mate. Um, In 1980, church attendance was about 6.5 million out of a population of about 50 million. That was 1980, which many of us remember. In 2015, it was down to 3 million. A drop from 11% to about 5%. The church, in many ways, is in decline. There are pockets of hope. There are churches and groups of Christians that are growing. Let me tell you, the churches that are growing are evangelical churches. Churches that believe the Word of God, who preach and teach the Word of God, who worship a living Lord Jesus, and who want to tell others about Jesus. They're the ones that are growing. They're the ones that are growing. There's a lesson in that, I think. That's the reality check. But let me tell you something really significant. Out of 14,000 people in Skipton, there are not 14,000 seats in all the churches combined. And even if we combined all those seats, there are still empty ones. This is the truth. The reality is most people in Skipton and the UK 
don't know Jesus. That's the reality check. We can look around and go, yeah, our church is doing all right. That is a false sense of security. The reality is most people don't know Jesus. And the terrifying thing is that the majority of people don't want to know Jesus. Don't feel they need it. That's our reality check. And my question is, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Because let's have a look at at Nehemiah's response to his reality check. When he found out what happened, what was happening to his people, he weeps and he mourns. And it's more than we're in a minority, we're feeling insecure. It's more than his hopes are dashed, more than illusions are shattered, more than it's not how it's supposed to be. He is jealous for God's name and concerned for God's people. Nehemiah's response reveals a passion for God. And it's a passion for God which, and his people which, frankly, I think we might feel maybe embarrassed or at least uncomfortable with. The reason being is because we've said that out loud here that the church is declining in many ways. People don't know Jesus. The majority of people don't know Jesus and there's not one tear shed here. Because I think if someone did start crying and mourning in this place, we'd probably look at them and go, they're a bit extreme, aren't they? If Nehemiah was here, we'd probably go, calm down, son. I know it's bad, but you know, British and all that. He weeps. And he mourns. Perhaps when we hear these news about the church, we're disappointed, discouraged. Maybe we're accepting that things change. We move on. That's just the way things are. Maybe we're apathetic or just overwhelmed or maybe a little bit smug. We're doing okay. God forbid we think that. Nehemiah allows himself to feel. He allows himself to be stirred, to be moved, to be upset. And I want to ask this question with no tweaking of heartstrings, but I mean this for myself. When was the last time you wept for God's sake? I asked that myself. I didn't like writing that, st- that question, trust me. When was the last time you wept for God's sake? Absolutely, people could say, just because I don't cry doesn't mean I don't care. Absolutely, but you know, I don't think this was typical of Nehemiah. I don't think it was typical. What we read of him, he's a very pragmatic, practical, down-to-earth kind of focused kind of guy. And we also read in a little bit that his employer noticed something changing in his mood. I'm not saying we have to weep tears, otherwise it's not sincere, but I'm asking, how often have we been moved to that kind of depth for God's sake? He allowed himself to be affected, to feel a little of the heartache of God, like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Who's not moved when we read that? Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he weeps over them, wanting to cuddle them. But they will just reject him like they've rejected all the others. We're not stealing thunder. We're going to sing a song, hopefully later on. And there's a line in it that says, break my heart for what what breaks yours, God. I'm scared when I sing that because even a taste of God's heartache for this world, I think would be frankly unbearable. I think Nehemiah gets a taste of it. This is God ordained heartache. So when we hear these things, these news about our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our family, who have a lost eternity, in the words of Catherine Tate, I'm bothered. Are you? Too often I'm not moved enough. 
But Nehemiah was not just moved for a moment, a brief weep and a move on. Like, do you know the things that happen at Red Nose Day or Children in Need? You watch the program, you watch the really amazing stories and you're moved and then there's a sketch and you laugh and you forget. Or maybe we're just so overwhelmed with tragedy. The news is on 24-7, multiple points of view, so many stories, so much tragedy, so much heartache that we're a bit overwhelmed. Maybe we become a bit numbed to the tragedy. Nehemiah stays in his grief and his mourning. He didn't just cry and mourn. He fasted and he prayed. Prayer saturates this book, which essentially is a building journal. (laughs) Prayer saturates this. And let me tell you, we better saturate our building of this next door and here in prayer. Unless the Lord builds a house. This book is saturated with prayer. Nine, nine prayers. And this first one in chapter one is the most um, extensive and the most revealing of the prayers. So why is prayer so important? I wonder if we treat prayer a little bit like a lucky charm sometimes, if we're honest. We're going to do something, we better pray about it, otherwise it won't work. Now, there's some good theology behind that, but I think there's a bit of fingers crossed as well. If we don't do it, then it won't work. That's not why we pray. There's more to that. Prayer reorientates us to God. It causes us to wait upon God, clears our vision and quietens our heart and activates faith. The reason why we pray is because prayer works. I'm not just talking about the slot machine prayer. Dear God, please help that person. Oh, they're helped, sorted. Prayer, in the biggest scheme of thing, works. I have a, a printout of the first chapter or so of this book called 10 Greatest Revivals. It's a page turner already, isn't it? And... Uh, These are some of the revivals that have happened over the years. There was a little revival called Pentecost on AD 30, where lots of people became Christians. You might have heard of it. Um, Following up in about 300s, there was a big mission push, and saints like Columba and Patrick go, and they spread the word of God around Europe. Then there's the pre-Reformation, the 1300s, the Bible in your own language. 1500s, we have the Reformation. People are called back to God and to confession of sins. Then in the 1700s, there's a great awakening. Who Who says God was asleep for a thousand years. No, 1720, the Great Awakening, and then someone who wasn't very clever with names came up in 1780 with the Second Great Awakening. And we have things like Methodism and Wesleyism, people um, preaching the gospel, Whitfield uh, going to the States and and things happening there. The General Awakening, same person, same name, 1830s. The Layman's Prayers, 1857, when just people got together and prayed and sought God. We have at the beginning of the, of the last century the, the, the revivals, 1904 revivals in the Welsh townships which spread to the States. And we have the Azusa Street preachers and the Azusa Street prophets in, in America. And from that we have Pentecostalism which kind of spread up and a, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In World War, just after World War II, there's a World War II renewal. In 1960s and 70s, the Baby Boomers renewal. That's when Billy Graham in the LA Crusade, I've just read it in his autobiography, it's amazing. They didn't know what was happening. Loads of people became Christians out of faithful, committed prayer. After that, there's the Toronto Blessing in 1990. Lots of weird stuff, but lots of really good stuff as well. And then, about 2015, in a place called Reading in England, a church called The Gate, led by a guy called Yinka. I heard him speak recently. They've been praying together as, as leaders in that time for years. 
And this is what has happened from 2015 in Reading and it's spread around other, other towns. People have gone from churches into the streets with a bit of paper, very simple explanation of the gospel, kind of challenging people, what would you do if you died? What, what are you going to do? Kind of old school, if you want to think of it that way. Thousands have become Christians. You don't hear that on the news at 10. Thousands have become Christians in Reading over the years, over these past few years. It's spread to Liverpool. It's gone to Lille in France. It's spreading around. Here's a little bit of an interesting tidbit. Are you ready? If you go on the Turnings Facebook page, it has their logo. If you look at their logo, it says the Turning, and behind it is a map, a map like an ordnance survey map. If you look closely, slap bang front and center in the middle is Skipton. I'll leave that to percolate in your heads a little bit. If we want and desire to see church grow, lives saved, people restored, healed, kingdom of God to flourish, and for the gospel to be passed on, we need to pray. I'll tell you why, because revival always starts in prayer. I know there are people who are gifted in prayer. Some people have developed a great habit. I vacillate from being good at it to being not so great at it. But there's no escaping this truth. You look at the church history, the only thing that gives birth to any kind of revival are people getting on their knees and praying. So that's briefly, I mean briefly, look at Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah prayed for three to four months, day and night. He was persistent, it was consistent, it was raw. If you read verses 4 to 11 in chapter 1, that isn't a one-off prayer. He starts praying when he's been told what's happened. By the end of the prayer, it's the day that he's going to see the king. He says, today, give me favor. That's his prayer over three to four months. None of this, dear God, please do this. Bye-bye, off I go into the next thing. He wrestled for days. It reminds us of Jesus and the persistent widow banging on a door seeking justice. We need to be persistent, consistent, and frankly raw if we want to see God move in this town and in our lives. The first thing he does, notice in his prayer, he says, dear God, do you ever do that in your prayers? Dear God, it's me again. <laughs> it's like a letter from earth to heaven. Why do we say dear God? It's kind of a thing. Actually, look at Nehemiah. He spends quite a lot of going, Lord, the God of heaven, the great, awesome God who keeps his love to his, to his people, his covenant people. His focus primarily is on God, not the problem, not us, not others. They come to God first because about who he is, what he can do, and what he has done. Because what does that do? It changes our perspective. It's like if you're trapped at the bottom of a well, you look up, the sky looks about that size. You go up out of the well, the sky is enormous. We need to change our perspective, and our perspective is changed when we focus purely and simply on God. Because we have so many things that will, will badger us and say, everything else, everything else, look at this. Here's a problem, try and sort it, try and solve it, get a committee, get a group, get, do this, do that, do the other thing. Instead, what we're told is forget that and focus on God. I think Jesus said something like that. You seek first God's kingdom, and then everything else will fall into place. Rough translation, I know. Seek God first. Do you know, situations don't depend on our prayers. They depend on the person we pray to. They don't depend on our prayers, the quality or even the frequency. They depend on who we're praying to. He was really aware of the mess 
that God into. He was recognized God's power, his love, his utter holiness. And I mentioned revivals, and it's not just about praying for revival. Nearly every prayer that you read about, sorry, every revival you read about, there is some point where there is utter confession and repentance. Even from the Christians. They get down and they confess their sins before God. Nehemiah maybe wasn't the most sinful characteristically of people. He worshiped God, but yet in his prayers, he says, Lord, forgive me and the sins of my family and of my hands and of my people because we're all in it together. You and I have a responsibility for the propagation of sinfulness in our world. And you may think, no, it's, over, it's them over there. They're really bad because we're good at blaming others. Actually, we have a responsibility and we have to put our hands up and say, God, I'm guilty too. I'm guilty for propagating greed and materialism, and hedonism. I want to have a nice time. I want to be happy. I want to protect what I've got. That's us propagating the selfishness of our society and of humanity. So God, forgive me. Forgive me for not getting involved in telling other people, other thirsty people, where to get water. Because I like it to myself. Nehemiah knew that this was based on what God had always said. Follow me, and things will go you know, not always easy, but you know, I'll be with you. Don't follow me and these things will happen. We call them punishments or consequences. We don't follow God's way. There's pretty dark consequences, it says in Deuteronomy. But there's one thing that Nehemiah does in this prayer. He says, remember God. And it's not that God's a bit old and needs a bit of nudging. Do you remember this? This is Nehemiah claiming a promise of God. Everywhere in the law where God says, you do this, you follow me, it's going to be good. You don't do it, it won't be good. This will happen. But he says, and nearly everywhere he says, but if you return, I will have you back. There is always a way back. Always. And our way back is through Jesus Christ. God is patient. It's like, maybe as a parent or as a teacher, whenever you want to do something and the, the rabble, the class, are just oh, going crazy and you stand there and go, no, just, just whenever you're ready. And then eventually, after a lot of patience, it calms down and the attention comes to the person at the front and they say, okay, now you're ready. We'll continue. Whoever that was, thanks. I'll pay you later. <laughs> now you've had your little gallivanting around. Let's get down to business. Now you've come back to me. Let's get on with things. There's always a way back for you, for me, for our church, for the church in this country, for the people of this world. There is always a way back, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? And here's a little promise. Over Skipton. Here is a promise which I'm speaking out over it. At the dedication of the temple, God says, after the dedication to Solomon, he says, if my people who are called by my name, that's us, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That is the promise of God which we claim for this place. For ourselves, for the people in this town, those who are labored and lumbered with debt and with lifestyles which are soul-destroying. For the people who are lost in this town, in this country, we say, Lord, forgive us. We will seek your face. 
In Jeremiah, after the whole, I know the plans I have for you, says, Then you will call on me, come and pray, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. These are the promises of God. God is faithful to his promises and his word. We do this, God will move. That's why I've got this recommendation to read about revivals, because they're faith-stirring. When you hear about these normal people who just got sick and tired and depressed at the way the world was and they got together and they prayed out of desperation and the spirit moved and the land was transformed. People say, historians say, if it wasn't for the, one of the great awakenings, I can't remember which one exactly, if it wasn't for that, we would have had the bloodbath that was the French Revolution. We would have had that here and they would have had it in America as well if it wasn't for that awakening. Hear the prayer of Nehemiah and of other servants who revere your name. This is not a solitary thing. This is us praying together. This is a corporate thing for people who are passionate about God's name. And then, after six verses and a lot of what might just be considered padding to a prayer, now you find out actually what he's asking God. This is not Nehemiah buttering him up and then saying, and this is what I want. He comes and he asked, this is his request. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king, Artaxerxes. It's a bit of an odd request, knowing what has gone on in Jerusalem. But after days and weeks and months of seeking God's face first, he discerns what God's plan is, and that is speaking to Artaxerxes. A risky plan, but this is a linchpin moment. I don't know what you would have prayed. I suspect it would have been something like, Dear God, please bless those folk over in Jerusalem. Oh, they're having a horrid time. Will you be with them? Let them know that they're loved. All very noble, that's good. I'm not being derogatory about that. But seeking God's face, he hears what God says needs to happen. You need to speak to the king. So his request, this linchpin moment is God, give me success. The guy who wrote a book about Nehemiah called John White, he was a national director of um, um, a Christian organization. His prayer list was massive and was getting him down. And then he read a book that encouraged him just to put the name down and then to wait for God to prompt what to pray for, then to record that. He did that and he said he was blown away by the way God answered the prayers of the needs that were needed, not our version. These are prayers that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit. It's why prayer is about listening, not just talking to God. We ask what God's plans are, and we wait for His will to be revealed. His plans, not ours. And Nehemiah, in this prayer, becomes more aware that he needs to be part of God's solution. And then the big reveal, which isn't really a big reveal at all. We know it anyway. I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king, which seems like a strange thing to throw in there. What he's saying is I was in the right place at the right time. And I was the right person. Remember, Artaxerxes didn't want anything built by anybody because he'd had rebellion before, but he trusted Nehemiah. And God said, Nehemiah, you go and ask him and he'll trust you. And Nehemiah says, will you let me build? And he says, yes, but that's Lisa's sermon next week, so I won't spoil that. 
I was cupbearer to the king, which means he was high-ranking, high influence. He tasted the king's cup, presented the king's wine. In ancient Near East culture, some people consider that was nearly um, prime minister status. He was an advisor to the king. He was trusted. It was intimate and privileged position. He was the right person in the right place at the right time. All those years of working up the, the corporate ladder to get to being a cupbearer, he thought it was hard work and it was God's design for him to be the right person in the right place at the right time to do what? To do God's thing. So we come to the end of chapter one and we've got a lot more to go. It's going to be exciting. But God, give us the reality of what's going on out there. Peter Smith runs a thing called Augment, which is helping churches to know what the real picture is of their community. Bless him in that, because the churches need to know what the reality is, not the fantasy. Response. Are we prepared to have our hearts broken, to engage our hearts in the knowledge that people are going away from God and to a lost eternity? But let's focus purely on God first, in reverence. He is the one. In prayer, heartfelt, reverent prayer. It will change our perspective. And let us repent of our actions that have been so against God. And of our inaction, which has meant that we've been comfortable while other people are lost. And let us remember God's promises that when we do pray, He will hear and He will move As I said, the churches that are growing are the ones who are doing this. Not for our glory, but for his. And then asking, requesting God, what do you want us to do? We've got loads of good ideas. We want a God idea. Next door is not a good idea. It wasn't our idea. It was a God idea. And it's been refined and challenged, and that's been godly. Anyone knows me, I'd stay away from building projects. But that's not the building project. Building God's kingdom is the building project. Reveal to us our part that we have to play. And don't go, well, that's that's what they're going to do. Because you could be in the right place at the right time. And you are the right person to do God's work. And maybe, just maybe, all these REs will lead to that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Can I invite the band to come up? That'd be great. Thanks. We're going to worship and we're going to pray.